0: Welcome back to A Higher Future. I'm Nicole Gravagna. I'm here with UB Seminieri and Joe Thurman. We are here with guest Todd Rose. Todd Rose is president of Populous Think Tank. He's also the author of Dark Horse, End of Average, and his upcoming book, which we're all very excited about, Collective Illusions. Thank you, Todd, for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to see you all again. Yeah, you too. You too, and and thanks, Joe, for guest hosting with us again. Um, we're excited because you know. So, interview IA a lot of the a lot of the, the principles and ideas that went into it really came from um, your book End of Average, and it, it's and we've talked before on our other podcast Choose Inclusion um, uh, about how that applies, you know, to diversity and inclusion and things like that. And today we wanted to talk about that and and you know a lot of the other things that you're working on as they relate to the future of work which is um as you said before we started recording i mean it's really changing like there's a fundamental change to that and we'll get to that but um yeah welcome back and uh nicole what's what's what how are we starting off this conversation (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, So I wanted to talk about the jaggedness principle, which is um, in the end of average, and it's something that we use at Interview IA as a foundation for a lot of the ways that we think about people at work. And, and so the jaggedness principle, I'll just set this up a little bit, it's that any given person can be both above average on some measures and below average on others, and it's the corollary to uh, the halo effect, which is like, if you're good at something, you're gonna be good at everything. Or, you know, if I know something that's awesome about a candidate, then I might expect them to be awesome in many other ways. And and so the jaggedness principle ends up being really important when um, doing all the things that we do to evaluate other people. And so um, I'd love to uh, understand a little bit about, you know, where how this is fitting into all of the things that you do and and how um, you're starting to see that jaggedness principle play out at work and in education.
2: Yeah, that's a great starting point. Um, so you know again thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, so yeah, this the Jaggedness principle, which just to just to add a little bit to that is like on any any human characteristic that matters is always multidimensional and those dimensions aren't nearly as correlated with each other as we think they are so it's it's interesting like you take body sizes it was usually where i start because it's so easy to visualize right you can see it um, where the mental stuff is just it's abstract so with body size if we were talking about height that is one dimension so there, there will be an average there and that average would be useful to talk about, right? But body size is not just height, right? Like it, it's gonna have multiple dimensions, you know, in an end of average, I talked about the Air Force, which had upwards of 140 something dimensions, just, just to think about designing for pilots. So, you know, it's, um, and, and we tend to think intuitively that, that those, what you call like the halo effect, that like, yes, look, I mean, Yeah, they're going to correlate. Well, think about it. Like the the tallest person you know isn't necessarily the heaviest person you know.
0: Yeah, any tall skinny man who's tried to shop at the big and tall store has learned that there was nothing there for him.
2: Right, (laughs) and it turns out they're actually like shockingly low correlations, even on something like body dimensions. And it's funny because like that turns out when you do intelligence tests and other things, they just don't correlate like we thought. But your point about the halo effect is great because Francis Galton, who kind of got us started down this dark, Whole of like like you know treating everyone the same and and one dimensionally like he just assumed it was true like he actually said well we know for sure you know people that are that are good at sports tend to be great leaders and they tend to be smarter it turns out like no it's not true and the problem is uh, to your point because we sort of just believe that um we'll latch on to one dimension that is related to us so we value it and like oh wow goes like so great at this and so am I and I'm going to assume you're going to be great at everything or conversely there'll be some salient thing that looks like a deficit and then we're going to just write them off entirely because of that so this starting point of understanding like no matter what it is when you're talking about individuals you need to assume every one of us has a jagged profile and if we can't if we don't start there we have no hope of genuinely understanding individuals let alone designing environments that get the most out of them
1: well, and it's amazing how I mean we like we hire like the, the sports analogy is perfect, right? Because how many how many companies have we seen who are like we should hire athletes, like yeah. because it translates yeah. to great salespeople or, or whatever, and it's mind blowing. Like, okay, prove it, <laughs> and they can't. It's you know worse. Think about how think about the other thing that's silly is
2: the way we promote. Even once we get you inside the company, uh-huh. right? Remember, like uh, Peter Drucker's the Peter Principle, which is you'll get promoted to your level of incompetence, right? Because we don't uh, like you know my my dad was uh, just retired, but he was a phenomenally successful engineer, designed airbags. Um, so this is literally you could not pick a better fit for this man's talents, right? And and yet in the company, like most companies. It was often the case that, like, the only way you could keep making more money was eventually to become middle management. <laughs> like, yeah. But, like, so luckily he he was so valuable to the organization they they made an exception for him. But it's like, so you were going to promote him, make him choose between making more money or having this phenomenally good fit where he is generating the most value for the organization. But that's the kind of like almost mindless way that we apply this average based thinking to the detriment of individuals and companies. Huh. I mean, yeah that- so
0: then in the end of average you you promote this idea also in a ted talk that that our listeners can find online it was a, a, a 2013 tedx in sonoma county if you're looking for it um this this uh, idea of banning the average and, and so uh, clearly, you don't mean never use average. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit more about when it's sure. useful and when it's not?
2: Sure. Yeah. No, you're on to something. It, there, there's definitely a role for averages. It's just we, as a society, we have blindly accepted that we can, we can substitute understanding you as an individual for understanding the group that we think you belong to and thinking that if we, if we understand, and you know why we did it, it's just was phenomenally hard. Back in the day, to collect real data on real individuals, and so uh-huh. from the very beginning of the use of averages, you know, like, um, like even in like physics, where Maxwell, who's coming, you know, a lot of the, the theory of gas was like, well, we can't study every gas molecule, but what if we could make these assumptions that if we took the average of it, like, well, great, okay, great, fine. Turns out it doesn't even work for gas molecules, by the way, but, um, <laughs> but. This is funny. Like we stopped doing it with gas molecules, but we still do it with people. But like, it's just, my problem was that it was when I would tell people group averages don't really work for individuals. It was like, I might as well have an extra arm or (laughs) two heads. They're just looking at me like, of course they do. Right. And I think they really don't. So I wanted to just force the issue a little bit to say, when it comes to individuals, here's what I would say. We are never justified mathematically or empirically to apply group level data to the individuals in those groups. Like you just, you have no real reason to be able to do that, right? Where averages become useful is if the, if you are trying to understand the population, right? Then that's a perfectly great tool. So it, for me, it's like the distinction between public health and medicine. Like mm-hmm. public health is a great place to use averages. So even, um, you know, one of the founders of using averages, Adolf Quetelet, you know, the Belgian astronomer who really kickstarted all this, He he's the guy that actually invented body mass index as a tool. Body mass index is a phenomenally good population level indicator of health. It is spectacularly terrible um, in terms of predicting individual health um, because it confuses, you know, things like fat and, and muscle, but also, doesn't have anything to say about where that fat's distributed. So as long as you're talking about a group, go crazy with averages, they're great. When it comes to individuals, we just have to be careful, right? Sometimes they apply, but usually they don't. And you are always better off to just start by understanding the individual first and then building up from there. Thank Ah, you for putting a name.
1: Thank you for putting a name to, uh, I assume, um, who billions of people now hate because of the BMI. Uh, number I mean literally <laughs> I, literally now people know
2: <laughs> yeah now, now you know why it's absurd that every every one of the Boston Celtics is technically obese right? Right. <laughs> in, but, but the good news is I, I will tell you the secret thing is I always carry more weight than I look like this my body frame and so the only upside to the body mass index is in Massachusetts we're using it to decide who gets COVID vaccinations first
0: <laughs> so right. I was like
2: fine Finally, finally <laughs> Sign me <the> up. nonsensical <laughs> use of average is starting to work for me. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I, I, mean, had, I hadn't COVID heard right? that. I
0: didn't know that was one of the ways that states are doing it.
3: All the COVID weight. I hope they're doing that on a curve. All of us have put Exactly. Off- I had to oh update it. I updated
2: for my doctor. I said, listen, I've gained about six pounds since I last saw you. So then yeah, technically puts me
1: in. <laughs> <laughs> in faith, one up phase. I love that. Yeah.
3: Well, I had yeah. a question. I mean, Todd, again, yeah, we... Uh, your, your book is a must-read. I recommend it to a lot of people. You really put a lot of um, uh, you, you explain a lot of the working theories that people are using or the conversations that people are using. You explain them in very concrete ways and theories that are that are really strong. So I think that you know, thank you for writing that and and putting that out to the world for sure. Uh, one of the principles that you talk about as well. So you have jaggedness, and then you talk about pathways. Um, so I guess I have a two-part question. Uh, can you explain in your own words what you think about when we, when you say the Pathways Principle and how that can be applied to, you talk about how it applies to hiring and different things like that. So you talk about that. And then part two, when we think about the future of work, you know, even thinking about the story about your, your father. So we get into this behavior of believing that promotion means someone is above average, right? Let's just go with that simple thing that people observe. If you stayed in the same role and you haven't gotten promoted to a manager, then you must be a below average engineer. That's an assumption that I think some people make. So as we move away from, as we try to move people away from this linear thinking and really start to help people with this view of the future of work where people will have much more diversity in their career, you know, maybe fold those two together. So your explanation of the pathways principle and then how we can teams.
2: Well, that sounds great. So, just as a starting point, um, since part of my jagged profile is terrible working memory, I'm probably going to need you to tell me that second part one again no, when I'm done no. with the first. We'll scaffold this one. Um, so, yeah, the pathways principle—it's it, interesting. So, um, it, it, it's simply this: for any outcome that matters, there is always more than one equally valid approach to getting there. Right, and and what's interesting is this principle comes from complex systems it's one of the few laws in systems that we have which is called equifinality that's all it's just a fancy word for equifinality right like it's like it and you think about it, any system that only had one right pathway to get there would be an incredibly fragile system and in fact frankly if you, if you look all across the country right now we have all these systems that are soldered single pathways that one public shock to the system takes the whole thing offline so like this 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 flexibility, it's, it's never infinite, but it is always more than one right way to get there. And that runs um, completely counter to Frederick Taylor, the father of scientific management, who based his entire uh, approach to work on the idea that there was only one right way to do anything. And, and so we're still living in, in that legacy. Um, and you just see it, it's just everywhere. You see it in education, right? There's one sequence and this is the optimal sequence. Um, at work, there's, a, we call it a ladder for a reason, right? Climbing a corporate ladder. <laughs> there's a sequence. So to your second point, I think, like, how does this apply to, to work? Um, I Look, I think one of the most dangerous things about it is that if you really thought about how you would optimize work, both for the individual in terms of fulfillment, like actually making work meaningful to them and, and, and a positive force in their, their life, and Maximized it for the company, right? What you would be striving for is to create fit between an individual's jagged profile in terms of their abilities and also their their interests, right? Their their motives, um, and the values and opportunities and constraints of the organization. So if if that's the aim, and I do think that's the aim, um, the the dumbest thing you could possibly do, besides never get people into that perfect fit for them, is actually force them out of that fit where they have to start trading off. Well, wait, do I, do I want to be perceived as successful by my colleagues? Do I want to be able to make a little more money? And they, they end up having to go into a context that is probably suboptimal for them um, when it never had to be true. And everybody loses. And and I'll say one thing about that. Um, you know, a couple of years ago we, we did the largest um, study ever of the private opinions of Americans on their view of a successful life. And here's what was fascinating. First of all, it was unbelievably individual, the the composition of attributes that make up what what I think of as success versus what you'll think of. But what was really cool is we we linked this to life satisfaction and fulfillment um, using like the Gallup kind of ladder, like where are you in this life? And here's what we found, which I thought was so cool. If you were achieving on things that were your values, your individual priorities, like moving them up, people that were that were actually doing better, you know, about a 20 point increase in that corresponded to an increase in life satisfaction that was the equivalent of giving people a 50% pay raise. However, all the achievement in the world based on someone else's view of a successful life does not translate into more fulfillment or life satisfaction. So you know, this is that case where by ignoring both the context principle, but in this case, the pathways one, we can inadvertently move people out of places where they are offering their best contributions and driving fulfillment for themselves into things that are bad for them, bad for the company.
3: Wow. That's a good soundbite right there. We're going to cut little pieces of that. (laughs) I mean, I love that. I love that. I mean, that's, that's really when we think of uh, the future of how teams will be built and how people will thrive and work will be done. I mean, we've always said that, you know, when you have people who are well aligned and who are passionate in some way, not, you don't have to be a hundred percent passionate about everything you're doing in your role, but yeah. when there's those elements there, um, it really creates the best employees, the best teams, the longevity that everyone's looking for yet many times hiring doesn't focus on any way, any truly objective way to achieve that. So, I mean, and, it's,
2: and you know- Do you know what's also kind of cool about this is, so think about the future of most work is collaboration, right? We've solved the simple problems. I mean, like like most most of the interesting things require collaboration and we know for sure that when they function, the more diversity in a team, the bigger the upside, right? But the, the trick is when they function, right? Because diversity, if you don't understand it, actually can create threat response. It can create a whole bunch of things that actually impair the ability of the of the team to function, right? But one of the best predictors of whether you'll come in with a um, approach, motivation instead of avoidance is whether you feel like you belong and whether you feel like this group is genuinely working for you. Um, and so you just think about the spillover effects of getting this one thing right, including like allowing us to unlock the power of diverse collaboration that I, I just don't think we've been terribly good at thus far.
0: So how do we, unlock that power of collaboration and diverse collaboration without diving into groupthink in a way that becomes destructive to all of that diversity that we might be pulling together. And, and I, I want you to tease your book, Collective Illusions, because it's something that we all should grab as soon as it comes out, because it's so timely right now
2: yeah so so you think about how we function in groups and and those groups that need high levels of social trust to be able to function to be able to bridge difference and and, and get the most out of it it's interesting we tend to think that it's our differences that are actually the biggest challenge, but that's not really true um, you know we we at Populous, we do private opinion research and we study people's values and priorities and aspirations in everything from the lives they want to live, the country they want to live in, what they want out of our institutions. And what we find over and over again, and it's just shocking. We are spectacularly wrong about what we think the majority in this country thinks. Like, I, I mean, it is, I, I am shocked by it. Like we have, there's not a single thing we've looked at where there hasn't been a massive collective illusion. For example, when we studied success, right? Out of 76 attributes can go into into a successful life. We use, by the way, this conjoint method, which forces trade-offs and you can't game it. So we know we're getting at private opinion. When we ask people what they thought the majority of Americans would say and choose, the number one attribute that services is fame, that, that people wanna be famous. They think, oh, everybody wants to be famous. That's the thing. The status is what really drives people. In private, it is dead last. It is number 76. Okay. So illusions don't get bigger than that. If I think most people around me, including my colleagues, are all about status and, they, and comparison and see me as pure competition, and I'm sitting there thinking, those aren't my values at all. Number one, um share- values are the moral foundation of all social trust. So if I think you're basically a zero-sum mindset comparison driving on status, I'm not going to trust you. Am I really going to be vulnerable? No, thinking that you could actually undermine me at any time. So these illusions are just killing us as a society. And it turns out those illusions don't go away when you get more specific. So when we do it with companies and we look at the values that we see at companies, because we know that value alignment between, between employees, and employees and employees with the organization is really important um, in terms of getting the most out of folks. Um, it turns out that the biggest obstacle there is not actually private values. It's the perception they have of everybody else in the organization. So like, it's crazy. You can see it over and over again. It's like, oh, I hold these values. I share them with the company but I don't think most people do. Well, guess what? If I don't think most people do, now all of a sudden the pull of conformity can lead my public behavior To actually not align with my private values anymore, but rather look like what I think everybody else does and wants.
0: I hope all the consultants out there are listening to note that when they go in to talk about values within companies, this is why it's bringing people together because they're now recognizing that they all agree with these values. And it's. And by the way, by
2: the way, we see this with boards. Man, you'd think this stuff would go away. Oh my goodness. The boards will get like one fringe idea that's very loud and then nobody says anything. And then when we do the follow-up with private stuff where they guarantee them anonymity, what you see is like quite often, nobody but that one person really thought this, but nobody wants to say anything. So it's just, it's so destructive. Um, And so, yeah, look, at at the end of the day, I I will say this. um, I think that these collective illusions are just wreaking havoc we know how to solve them so this is the good news so part of what populist does hmm. is we our culture work is we use um media entertainment and brand to actually dismantle these illusions it's a lot of fun um i, I will say one last thing and this will be for a future uh podcast is my co-founder uh rohani is working on the second aspect of this about how collaboration happens where like we don't know how to interact with difference very well we don't understand it we don't hmm. understand how to engage and because our brains treat difference as novelty, and novelty can literally tease up both a simultaneous uh, pre- anticipated reward, because it could be new information, could be good mm-hmm. for you, and anticipated threat, because it could kill you. Yep. And so which way it goes determines whether this works or not. And so uh, Parisa's work uh, is all about what is it that individuals need to be able to know to be able to, to lean into that and always have it be more about reward. engagement and we just don't teach that to people right now.
1: I mean I feel like we don't teach any of this to people. That's part of the you know this is so it's fascinating. I mean there's so much in this conversation. I think um, we're kind of maybe the last thing and how we get this into the future of work is is how how is the future of work how does it need to change? I mean, how do companies need to change? How do they need to look at this? Because it's not just about, you know, remote work, right? It's not like just, just changing the, the, the environment. Yeah. It, it goes way beyond that. Yeah. But I think companies, you know, COVID and then Black Lives Matter, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to change. So how do they do that?
2: Well, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, these public shocks to the system, that disrupt the status quo, give us a chance to do something qualitatively different if we choose to take that opportunity. Um, the the thing that I, I believe and that's the work that we're doing in this space is that like the end game is completely dismantling Frederick Taylor. Like scientific management, the application of these average-based thinking is, has infected everything about the way companies operate. Um, and, to the point where we almost don't even recognize it, right? But the, the problem is, when I see people lean into this more human-centered, okay, we get it, people people matter, and let's help them be engaged and, and whatever, and they believe it, they they still try to solve for that with the assumptions of group-based thinking, and, <laughs> and it's like, you are never gonna get there, ever. Like, so I don't quote Elon Musk very often, but, um although I do like my Tesla, but like the, uh, is, you know, and I, I, I'll paraphrase him. I and mean, he talked about like, how did he get to like SpaceX or, 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 Tesla when others couldn't figure it out? As he said, most people reason by analogy. I mean, that's a terrible thing. You communicate by analogy, you reason from first principles. Right. So I think the same thing is going on right now in, in the future of work is we've got all these ways of thinking, and then we reason by analogy, or we try to come copy, but it's like, step back think about those first principles and build from there and it's not it's actually not harder it's just going to be different but i think that the first mover advantage that exists for companies that figure this out is like astronomically high
1: well yeah and i think that that's what that's what's really exciting to me and i think a lot of people particularly in in the dei discussions right because again it's been a lot of checkbox performative behavior for the past it's called it, 10 years but um now now they're it, it's it's because the people are demanding it like the populace is demanding it and so yeah. the, it's you either do or die at this point as an organization and I'm excited for that piece of it because I feel like true change you can kind of see it you know it's like it's, it's at the horizon there yeah. so and you know what's
2: interesting is especially with automation, and artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's funny, most of the conversation is what it will do to employees, right? Because, but if you think about it, the whole business model you have, sure, like you can, you'll be able to offload and automate some of that work and you'll have less employees, but you still have, what? what's really what that means is your whole, the name of the game is being able to do the hard stuff really well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if you keep carrying on the old way of thinking, in a weird way, AI and automation will get you a boost in probably profits (laughs) for the short term and actually completely tank your company in the long term. Because you'll be left with like a scenario where you can't muddle through anymore, where the reality is that you have to figure out how to have as diverse a workforce as possible. And I don't mean box checking. I mean, there's a Mm -hmm. real Mm -hmm. unbelievable value to that. And how do we do that in a way that people are fully engaged and able to collaborate across d- that diversity to produce outcomes that you just simply wouldn't be able to do otherwise? And often there'll be problems that don't have simple solutions, right? things. There, so I just think like when we talk to s- CEOs, it's like, listen, you think this is just a problem for those employees? Like this is the time to figure this out. This is the time mm-hmm. to get the enabling conditions right so you will thrive because otherwise, that that creative destruction that's about to come for you is going to be incredibly painful because there'll be a lot of startups who figure this out and who will eat your lunch
0: it sounds like you just made the business case for diversity equity and inclusion very clear
1: (laughs) yes yeah oh yeah this is awesome this is cool Yeah. Thank you, Todd. This was a wonderful, great conversation. I mean, there's so much in here. People are going to need to watch it a couple of times, which will increase our numbers. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it's funny. I, I love it. I
2: love it. and I love where you're at. I love how you think about this, because it's like, once people realize that the DEI aspect is properly understood, right? And its capability of generating phenomenal positive sum outcomes in terms of material abundance, but also human flourishing, right? This is where it's going. And you know, it's just, it's hard when you've been used to doing something for a hundred years, a certain way, right? Um, yeah. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see, I, like, you know, will companies be able to reinvent themselves? You know, very few do, right? This is why you you let them go and, and let new ones take their place. Or, you know, everyone's more like an IBM that can completely, I think the same thing will happen the way you think about diversity, equity, inclusion, the way you think about hiring, um, like, I'd rather them figure it out, but if they won't, then just step aside and let other people who, who have figured it out, take the lead. Yeah.
1: Huge. Well, thank you. It was good to see you again. Um, you great conversation. Thank you, Nicole and Joe, as always. And thank you everybody for for tuning in. Um, always check out the, the links in, in the description here. We'll, we'll point you to the page and give a listen to all our, all our other amazing guests as well. So thank you all very much. We'll check you next time.